Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the other two disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, is it the Lord? As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring me some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. May God add this blessing from this reading. Rob particularly to pray for Rachel today, who I know would love to be with us. Okay, let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for this fellowship and this opportunity to celebrate your love together. And as we gather together in this way, 
We become especially aware of those who can't be with us. And we think especially this morning of Rachel. We can only guess how frustrated and how uncomfortable she is. And so we commend her to your care, to the embrace of your love, knowing that you'll be with her just as you're with us now. We pray that in the days ahead and at this moment, you will give to her a sense of peace. And that through the work of doctors uh, and others and all those who care and support her, she might also know your healing, your restoration. Just at this moment when things seem to be coming a little bit back to normal, we can only guess how difficult it is to be stuck on the sidelines again. So we do ask that you give her patience courage and endurance and somehow through all things faithful and thankful heart for we ask it in Jesus name Amen Well, good morning, uh, everyone. Uh, it's lovely to be back with you. Uh, I, I was with you on Zoom. I think it was about 16 months ago, something like that. You were all facing that way then. <laughs> so I gather you're in, you're in a liturgical experiment. So good luck with that. Talking about experiments and school reports, uh, um, I... Uh, it wasn't part of a school report, but I also remember my teacher giving me back an examination paper with the words, your brother couldn't do physics either. <laughs> so these things, they stick a long time, don't they, in, in, the, in the memory, as, as well as all the could do betters and handwriting must improve and you know, all of those kinds of things. Let, pray with me, please. Living God, through your written word, we pray now that you will speak your living word into our hearts, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So endings are very important, aren't they? In life, we like to have good endings. When we leave a job, uh, as I did a few months ago, or when a relationship breaks up, or even these days we sometimes speak about people having a good death. Hospices, in part, were created to enable just that. And we like our stories to end properly. You know, that sensation of coming to the end of a film or a book and feeling somehow that it hasn't ended properly. You know, that, that real feeling at the end of the first series of Killing Eve. How could they end it like that? That's a cheat. I decided not to, not to watch any of the other series as a result, as a kind of protest. I'm sure the BBC paid full attention to it. We like our loose ends to be tied up. Perhaps if some of the plot wasn't clear, we like somehow to be able to understand when we get to the end. We feel instinctively that they should make sense of what's gone before. 
Some of you may remember and have watched uh, A Touch of Frost, that long-running ITV detective series that completed it a few years ago now. Apparently, the producers filmed three different endings and didn't decide which one to broadcast until the day of transmission. And uh, they wanted to avoid plot leaks. That was one of the things they were trying to do. But they were also apparently acutely aware that how it ended would affect the way in which the regular viewers understood everything that had gone before. Uh, film producers, of course, sometimes like to shoot several endings for films, and then they try them out on viewers to see which one is likely to be the most commercially successful. Sometimes books you think have stopped, and then they kind of start up again, and there's a bit more epilogue or something it will say at the ending at the end. And John 21's a bit like that. It might say epilogue above it. So the writer is concerned that the end makes sense of everything that's gone before it. He's not worried about sales like the film producers. He's not worried about plot leaks like A Touch of Frost. But he seems to have an ending at the end of chapter 20. And then it starts again. So I think he was trying to tie up some loose ends, and we're just going to think a bit this morning about what loose ends they were and how it might help us make sense of what had gone before. So in the Gospel of John, the focus is almost entirely on the people of Israel, the faithful people of the covenant. There are hints of wider things at other places. But here we get a different story. This is a story about God's love to and for everyone, to and for everywhere. This story about God's love will even one day reach Wilton, where almost the shadow of the pagan stones lie not so very far away. To rich and poor, tall and short, black and white, fit and fail. The disciples had gone fishing in chapter 21. In a crisis with their world and their hopes in tatters, they go back to what they knew best, what they did originally. They go back to the ordinary and the everyday. It's what many of us do in times of difficulty. We go back to what we know. Anybody go fishing here? Isn't that interesting? Apparently, there are 900,000 freshwater fisher people say fishermen these days, fisher people in England and Wales. Isn't that an astonishing number? 900,000. I got that off the internet, so it's bound to be right. <laughs> it, it was a, a, a seemingly reliable source, I should add. Uh, many years ago, when I was in pastor, I married a young couple who were going to spend their wedding night fishing. Uh, people might catch bream or bass or perch or trout or salmon or cod. You have to go to salt water for cod, don't you? I guess if we were to try and name all the different kinds of fish that we could, I wonder how many we would get to. Well, I'm guessing we probably wouldn't get to 153. In John 21, the disciples go back to fishing and they catch a net-busting 153 large fish we're told. Now we've seen TV footage where they haul in these vast nets and goodness knows how many hundreds there are writhing around in them. 
But in this smaller weighted net that the disciples would have used on Galilee, 153 would have been a lot of fish. Now, I'm about to do something that's very dangerous because the risk is you're only going to remember this at the end. But 153 is a very peculiar number. Okay? It has the very rare property, concentrate hard now, that it is the sum of the cube of its own digits. <laughs> Not many people know that. I'll say it again, the sum of the cube of its own digits. So if you think of 1 times 1 times 1, and you add it to 5 times 5 times 5, somebody's checking it down here, <laughs> and you add it to 3 times 3 times 3, you get 153. There you go. Try and find another number like that when you're, doing, uh, when you're having your lunchtime uh, debrief on this topic. So, but there's another thing about 153. Today's marine biologists tell us that there are upwards of 29,000 different types of fish. But in the ancient world in which our gospel is written, they thought there were, I'm sure you're now echoing, 153. So difficult to believe, though it might be, that somebody's counted these fish, the writer knows that there are 153 fish. There are, there is every So the first readers would have heard that number, and they would have thought all kinds of people, not just Israel, not just our in-crowd, not just the people of the faithful covenant, but this is a particular way of recording Jesus' command to go and tell everyone. Okay, we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, you know, uh, when somebody asks you, have you heard of someone or other? Have you been to such and such a place? Did I tell you this story? And you might say, well kind of ringing a bell somehow. It, it resonates. Well, of course, if you've read the rest of the gospel, there'll be a particular bit of this story that that will do, that it will ring a bell. Peter, always quick to speak, to give an opinion, to volunteer for a task, to profess loyalty. His strengths were his impetuousness, his enthusiasm, his eagerness. He told Jesus he would go everywhere, he would do anything, he would never let him down. And if you've ever been let down badly by someone close to you at work or at home or over some particularly sensitive or personal matter, you told me you would not tell anyone about it. You will know how devastating it can be. Someone promises to stand by you, says they'll be there, they'll speak up, It's very natural to feel hurt and betrayed and let down. And Jesus would have felt hurt and let down and betrayed when Peter was asked three times if he knew him, and each time he said no, trying to create more and more distance with each answer. There are moments when someone will say something uh, positive and supportive, and you think, oh, yeah, I'll believe that when it happens. Uh, sometimes I remember when our children were growing up, they'd promise to do something, and I'd think, oh, yes, well, we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. Uh, one of them always used to promise to mow the lawn when we went on holiday. Uh, uh, it 
never happened, except the once when I hoped it would never happen again. Um, <laughs> like Peter, sometimes people, we, say this and we actually mean it. But experience suggests that when the time comes, they'll forget or there'll be other forces pressing on us. Peter was afraid. He knew what was about to happen to Jesus. He was afraid it might happen to him. Either way, Peter famously denies Jesus three times. Before the cock crowed, he must have felt wretched. And so after the strange events of the Easter weekend, the Friday, the Sunday, the days that followed, Peter decides it's time to go back home, to go back to work, to go back to what he knows, to see what happens. And this story is a sign that Jesus meets us in our everyday lives, in our work. Peter going back to those fishing boats. But it's more than that, isn't it? Because something extraordinary happens when Jesus meets Peter in his familiar surroundings. And after that miraculous catch of 153 fish, they share a meal together on the shore. As they had shared meals together many times, as they shared a meal on the night before that betrayal. And then Jesus asks his three questions and gets three answers. This is the bit that rings a bell. And it's impossible to think that this isn't a kind of opportunity for Peter to put it right. For Jesus to offer a restoration, a forgiveness, and a reinstatement. Peter gets his old job back here. When politicians have to resign, we've had one just this weekend, haven't we? The press find it difficult to forgive and forget. A disciplinary situation at work can be very awkward and embarrassing for everyone. But I think to see this restoration for what it is, we need to think of it not only as a friend forgiving a massive letdown, but also as an extra kind of way, a kind of restoring to the task. It's this that comes through the question and the answer. Peter, who betrayed Jesus three times, is forgiven three times, and each time he's given something to do. It's difficult to imagine anything more heinous for Christians than betraying Jesus. Yet even this turns out not to be fatal, not to be final. Apparently, even Peter can be forgiven and restored. And if, we, if he can, maybe there's hope for all of us. No one can ever put themselves completely outside the forgiving, restoring love of God in Jesus Christ. To all who will come back, who will open themselves to that love, there is the possibility of a restoration. Fits in, doesn't it, with those 153 fish. All kinds of people. Every kind. Even those who've done terrible things, like betrayed Jesus. It's a very challenging message. One of the ancient fathers of the church got into some trouble by suggesting that even Satan finally might be restored. That no created being, Satan was there, could put himself finally outside of God's redeeming love. 
think about some of the people you've come across or heard about, the unhinged, the desperate, the terrorist. Preachers of another generation might have said, even Hitler. I wonder if we might be saying even Putin. And in days of safeguarding, we know just how complicated this might be. What everyone capable of restoration? When I was a young minister in Milton Keynes many years ago, had a church member who fostered babies. And she came to me one day asking to talk. Her problem was, she said, that she couldn't say the Lord's Prayer in church. She says, I can't ask for forgiveness because there are some people I can't forgive. I can't say forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us because I can't do it. And as she talked, what she said was that she couldn't forgive, she couldn't bring herself to forgive those who abused the babies that she looked after. So we talked about this for a while, and I asked her if she couldn't forgive them, could she at least want to forgive them? She thought for a while, and she said, no, I don't want to forgive them. So we talked a bit more. And I said, well, could you want to want to forgive them? There was a long pause, and finally she said, I suppose I might be able to say that. Well, it wasn't much, but it was a start. And maybe a start is all God needs. I'm hoping so. The church that preaches the good news of Jesus Christ preaches this dramatic, transforming news that everyone can be given a new start, that everyone can be called to play their part in God's work. And this is an ending that helps us make sense of the whole gospel. All kinds of people, 150 clean fish and even Peter restored. I wonder what that might mean here in Wilton as we emerge from the pandemic dogs of war can be heard howling in the distance. There's one more final loose end. It's a very personal one for Peter too. He hears a harsh prediction of his own end. You may know that tradition has it that Peter was indeed finally crucified but that when it came to it, he was unwilling to suffer the same fate as his master, and so he asked if he could be crucified upside down. Well, having heard that this is to be his fate, in this rather cryptic language of the gospel, he goes on to ask about John. Well, what will happen to him, the disciple that Jesus loves? What will his ending be? Very human kind of response, isn't it? Well, all right, well, what about this? Or I'm going to get that. What about, the, what about these others? And Jesus, in effect, says, just worry about yourself. Don't be concerned with what happens to anyone else, just you. My grandmother, who used to knit constantly, used to have a saying, 
which was just get on with your knitting. What she meant was just mind your own business, just do your own thing, don't worry about what other people are up to. Forgiveness for everyone, a task for everyone, but your task, your calling, as Peter was to discover here, is yours, it's not anyone else's. Your strengths, your weaknesses, they're yours, they're not other people's. Your calling will be U-shaped. Don't fret or compare. Just get on with your knitting. In this church, in this community, in your family, in your work, with your neighbours, follow your calling. Follow it, knowing that God's love embraces absolutely everyone and that it keeps restoring us again and again and again. And in the end, the gospel finishes just as the gospels began, with Jesus saying, follow me.